Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night, and... It's kind of late, I'm tired, but uh, I'd like to do this early in the week rather than later, because always I have a lot of work to do, so I'm too tired to do the other one. Let me say a few words about a bio. Tonight's uh, podcast is uh, being sponsored by my good friends, the Elbaums. This is uh, Judy Elbaum's Mulder's Yard Side tonight. That'd be Mrs. Um, Beatrice Nathanson. Uh, from my old neighborhood, from Baltimore, Maryland, from, uh, from uh, Camelot, uh, otherwise known as Forest Park. Uh, wonderful place that no longer exists. <laughs> uh, and uh, as I said, this is uh, Judy's uh, mother and then Ari Elbaum's grandmother. And uh, I understand she was a very nice person. And uh, the, the, the best postscript you can see in the story is uh, Ari and Heather just had a baby now during the corona, and they named it after her. Her name is uh, Badana, so the baby's name is Chai Badana. Badana's an East European Yiddish name, Russian name, and uh, that's the best uh, you know, tribute you can pay if your grandson want to name some after you. Anyway, up in the will have an Aliyah. I was looking through the names in the last couple weeks. I went here and there, Heather and Yan, because some of my good sponsors asked me to do this one and that one, but I'll try to get back to, now we're in the month of Kislev, and so uh, I looked at a bunch of names, and I, I lighted upon the Arachlan Arab, and I figured that's the one to do, the famous Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, or I hope he'll be famous in a minute, <clears throat> and that's who I'd like to talk about now. Uh, this is a, uh, this is the world of the Yekis, it's a German, okay, he's probably the greatest German, German, German rabbi of the 19th century. Am I right about that? I don't know. But he's up there with the top five or six. No question about that. And uh, Jakob Etlinger, who lived all the way through the 1800s. In other words, he was born in 1798 and died in 1870, 1871, something like that. So his life is in Germany. Uh, but this is um, a period of great transition. I spoke a couple weeks ago about Rabbi Rice. You know, Etlinger is the same thing. They all lived through periods of profound, profound transition where, to use dumbed-down language without getting too complicated, that's when reform started, okay? That'll make it easier for you to understand. In other words, modernity in various forms popped up in Germany, and uh, many were swept along with it, but many were not. And our hero obviously came from the old school where there was not. Uh, this is someone... Do you remember a little while ago I spoke about the Carbon Hassano? Some of you may recall that. Uh, who was, ended up in Karlsruhe. To be in the rabbi. It was a very small community in uh, the western part of Germany. After I did the Carbon Hassano, I got a bunch of emails, which are very interesting for various people, here and in England, who said, oh, I'm from Karlsruhe, <laughs> you know, or my, my family is my uncle and all the rest of it. 
it wasn't a large Jewish community, but it's a fairly important one, which ever since the Carmen had had a firm community. They also had a non-firm community, but they always had a firm community. So it was a center of Yiddishkeit, small, but center of Yiddishkeit in Germany. Uh, this is where our hero is from. His father was a rabbi in one of the communities there, right, right after the time of the Carmen Asano. And uh, so he grew up in time of storm and stress. If he's born in 1798, that means he's born during the decade of the French Revolution, which is in 1790 or so, 1789. And following the French Revolution, uh, wars broke out, which lasted 25 years, from 1790 to 1815. That's a long time. And in the course of these wars, you know, armies went back and forth. And uh, I don't want to get too bogged down in this, but uh, let's put it this way. The French won, and especially under Napoleon, and they brought in a great deal of modernity to the areas they conquered, including the area we're talking about in Baden, in Western Germany. And the French uh, brought in two things. First of all, civil rights for the Jews, which is extremely important. Citizenship, in other words. But number two, um, that's coupled in a very Fr French style with the kind of expectation that Jews will modernize, which is not so pushed. So the French occupation is really the beginning of Again, I'm dumbing this down. The beginning of the reform movement, okay? With Israel Jacobson and other people like that. I mean, it took a long, long time for it to play out, but the origins would come in what I'm speaking about. So our hero grows up in a small community with a very strong traditionalism, no question about it, and father was a rov, and he was from, notice that was his teva, uh, and he grew up in that little town in Karlsruhe, which is an important port city on the river, and... Um, when he, and you know, in typical old school, in other words, what I'm trying to say is like this. He wasn't one of these modern Jews that sends kids to public school all the rest of it. This is Germany in the early 1800s, so they got a secular education of some sort or another. But on the side, their uh, education was learning. And when he reached them, you know, teenagers, the father sent them south into Bavaria by the, uh, to go learn yeshiva. So if it's the second decade of the 1800s, specifically 1816, when he was 18 years old, there still were, for another 10, 20 years, approximately, another 20 years, um, yeshivas, a couple yeshivas in South Germany of the old school. And then the reform closed them up. So he was lucky enough, I guess you'd say, to be, I guess, in the last generation, sort of, in which uh, it was still possible, if that's what you wish to do, to attend the regular old-fashioned German yeshiva, now, this is not a Litvish yeshiva. It's not a Hungarian yeshiva, exactly. It's its own style. It's a Bavarian yeshiva. These are the yeshivas in Firth and Würzburg. These are the two big yeshivas in Bavaria, in southern Germany. Again, one's in Firth and one's in Würzburg. If you want to know all about them, I always keep saying, go get Rabbi Hamburger's three fat volumes on the yeshiva in Firth, which also has a lot on Würzburg. And they were smaller yeshivas here and there, but these are what you might call how shall I put it, uh, you know, like the mirror in the lake water, so, something along those lines. And so uh, if you're 18 years old, and it's right after the end of the French Wars, because in 1815 Napoleon was defeated, and that was the end of the wars, uh, I might add that once Napoleon was defeated, the reaction uh, popped up in Germany, which means all the governments who had been kicked out by Napoleon came back in, took away the Jewish civil rights, and reimposed very strong right-wing regimes, and uh, tried to turn the clock back 
to the degree they were able to. The Jews were not pushed back into ghettos, and they never had a ghetto in Karlsruhe anyway. But they were deprived of many rights. And in Bavaria itself, they were under a lot of uh, gazeras, they were. Uh, and that's where our hero was. Now, I'll tell you why I'm saying that. If this is 1816, and he's 18 years old, it's very interesting that the reason, as far as I can tell, I'm just telling you the way I understand it. It wasn't there. But the best I can reconstruct it, as I understand it, is he could have gone to first, or he could have gone to uh, Würzburg. These are two big yeshivas. Würzburg has college. You hear what I just said? It's like near Israel. If you want to go to yeshiva plus college, you go to Würzburg. And after 1815, um, I think people could tell that the old ways are not coming back totally. Um, it's not a good thing, but that's what it is. The old Yiddish guide is not coming back totally. And in order to be a successful rabbi or have a Kesha with the Balabatim in the future, the younger generation, the future Rabbanim is going to be a big advantage to have some kind of college education, even if only to speak and uh, uh, be public speaking. You get it? And so our hero went to Yeshiva and he learned up a storm. And I could go with you to the list of his Chavrusas, but why bother? You don't know those names anyway. You know, and he, was, and he had a reputation being a very big frummy. But he also went to college. Now, I use the word college uh, loosely. It's a German university. That means what we call grad school, which means, to use American language, he must have take, taken CLEP tests uh, to get in. It was possible in those in 19th century, maybe in Germany, still possible today. To get your BA all the, uh, all the way up to BA with CLEP tests. You understand? If you take the right number of tests, and so these are called extern, your external. If you take all the right number of tests, so basically, a from guy, if he wished to, and many did this, many did this in the course of the 19th century. These are the from ones. You want to go and get a PhD, because that's the only thing the, the Balabatim understand. And so, what do you, but you don't want to go to, to gymnasium and very geisha environment. So what do you do? You uh, get tutors. And you get a guy to teach you math, another guy to teach you science, and a guy to educate, you know, t teach you Greek and Latin, that kind of junk, because that counted in those days. Uh, and maybe history, whatever it is. And then you take formal tests. Do you, like, sit for? Now, if you pass the, the test, you get credit for it. Enough for a BA, right? Now, they didn't call it a BA in those days. It's not a bachelor degree. But it doesn't matter, because... It, the degree that I'm talking about allows you to go to grad school, which we call in Germany University. So our hero, if he went to um, Würzburg to learn, and again, he was very from, and he was a machmer, and this, and that, and the other. And the Chavrusas later on used to tell how from he was, and so forth, and so forth, and learning, learning, learning. No question about that. But if he's going to college, then uh, it means like this. Somewhere back in Karlsruhe or wherever, he must have, his father must have got tutors, and he must have done the uh, Lumuni Chol stuff on the side, not in school. You understand? It's just a very interesting model. And that was the Frum way of doing it. Because the theory was, when you get to grad school, people are more serious. You know, when you get to gymnasium area, then it's a more uh, a beer hall student culture. It's uh, not a good environment for a Jewish kid. So it's just interesting. Now... He was there, and in as, as best as I can tell, his plan would have been to learn X number of years in yeshiva, not a few, 
And meanwhile, um, get his uh, a PC. You understand? Write the write this stupid dissertation. You know, after you take the pre required number of courses, and then when you get the college degree, plus you also have a, a doctorate. So that'll put you in the front rank to get a Cahilla somewhere. And if the guy knows how to learn too, so it's a two for one. Uh, if I can use the term the Hersheyan ideal, even the Hersh also never finished college. The thing is like this. So he was in Würzburg, and I repeat, most of the time is learning and putting the time necessary to go to the university, attend the courses there. And then a huge wave of anti-Semitic riots broke out throughout Germany, especially in Würzburg. I mean, physical riots where Jews were beat up and killed and stuff like that. He was right there. I don't know if he was in college when the riots broke out. All I know is the Jews were kicked out of the city and things like that. And it was a concept mess. I spoke about this a couple weeks ago when I did uh, the Rabbi in Baltimore, Rabbi Rice. Uh, the Jews had to relocate to Tzail outside of town, whatever. Uh, and so he fled uh, Würzburg. Now, in my opinion, uh, this is what I think. I think this soured him altogether. Only Munichol, even if you know, even if he, even if his lahachila reason for doing it was sort of, you know, shalolishma, just to, you know, to 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 help make the balabat from. But this really did it, because you see, uh, you know, halachal mishmisini esav son of Here in Germany, especially university, was to be the most cultured, most educated. And here you have a foreshadowing of Hitler. Now, the riots of 18, 18, 19, 19 were nothing like Hitler. Not at all. Right? And the government suppressed them. But still, you saw the face of Esau. Can I use that expression? I'm speaking this week in the Parshish by Yetzir, you know? They saw the face of Esau and Lovin. And so, uh, he never went to college again. Right? So, even though you sometimes will read that Rabbi Yaakov Entlinger, who wrote the Aner, was the first rabbi who went to college, it's not exactly true. I mean, he did take courses in college, but didn't get a BA. It's not what you think. It's not like he went to college up to point X and just never finished his doctorate. Never actually went to college for the BA stuff. He did that, let's say, with Kleptes. And the, uh, you know, doctorate part, he started it, but then uh, he just dropped it. And listen, he could have gone somewhere else. It's not what he wished to do. They got totally turned off. And if anything, this uh, super activated the firm side. And so he ran away to the other yeshiva, which is at Firth for a while. And these are big rabbis, Rabbi Bing, and uh, people you never heard of. Anyway, and, you know, uh, well, let's leave it at that. As a result, um, he got a big reputation. Now, n- l- let me say this. His kleptes and his years in college, such as they were, did give him a good German and to be perfectly honest, that's all you need. The Baal too stupid to know about whether you can do research in history, philosophy, uh, geology. Philo- ask, ask a Yekesh Baal Abbas in the 1820s and 30s, what's philology? They don't know. You understand? The Baal Abbas were just interested in the Chetsonius. Not interested. That's usually the way it goes. If the guy has a, has a degree, that's all that counts. If you speak a good German, like you say today, speak a good English, doesn't matter if you use words that the Balabad don't understand. His Chavrusa, among others, was uh, Bernays, who later went to Hamburg. It was the Rebbe of San Sreve Lourish. Yitzhak Bernays. Call him Chacham Bernays. And it's very famous that Bernays was Taka hired as a being rabbi in Hamburg precisely because he had a college education, although he too never finished his doctorate. 
And again, it was enough that he could speak well, speak German. As a famous Misa, I must have said this before, that when Bernays gave his opening speech, he wanted to show off that he knows Lemuel Hall, and so he's making what we would call today classic references, meaning references to Greek and, and Latin mythology and things like that, which an educated person was expected to be able to do. You know, to shoot the bull and the, uh, and the European stuff and the Geisha stuff. And he said, like Jupiter said to Mars, and it's a famous story, one ball of bus over there on the committee, you know, the Poom, Parnosman, he says, who is Jupiter? He keeps mentioning Jupiter. I never heard of such a person. <laughs> and the other one says, I guess, I never heard of him either. But after Abiner is quoting him, he must have been a famous rabbi, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like he said, the Rajba. You see, this is the level of people you're talking about. So our hero, um, once he finished, you might say like this, he was learning, learning, and he could speak German, which is a big plus. No, was relative to other rabbis, he was educated. Uh, and at a certain age, in his 20s, I think his mid-20s, I believe, so he secured a position as a official rabbi of a small series of districts, more or less in the area of Heidelberg, if you know where, where that is, Mannheim, Heidelberg. Heidelberg is a big, uh, famous university in the Western Germany. And um, uh, what do you call it? These are famous places. Now, um, uh, the this all in Baden, like I say, it's Karlsruhe, Baden. These are all the same area of Western Germany. Now, uh, he settled down in in, in uh, Mannheim, which is all nearby, and that means that he's the official rabbi of the Jewish. This is a German thing. You know, the government appoints the official rabbi of the Jewish communities in this whole area. There may be five or six or ten communities. Each community has ten, fifteen people. This is not what you think. It's small. But Mannheim was already bigger. And he said that, and and the position he got was a closer beaner. This is the job he, he, he wanted. And I'll tell you exactly what that means. A Klaus in German means a kolel. Uh, the... Uh, Klaus means different things in different places, but in this case we're talking about, it was a kolel. A rich guy died years before. He le- he was a frummy. He left a certain amount of money as a Karen Kayemis with, uh, I remember it was 100,000 Reichstahl or something like that, and it was 6% interest, and the interest goes to fund what you and I would call a kolel. So the bottom line is, this is an educational institution. The guy who's going to be it is not simply the rabbi of a synagogue, Although he had such authority, but most importantly, he's supposed to be the rabbi of a learning synagogue, or what we would call some variation of a kolel. And so what our hero did, it was in his 20s, was he said, I'm going to make a yeshiva. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, he was a from guy, and in the from uh, culture, what you want to do is make a yeshiva. This is particularly true if it's the 1820s, and you already saw and he was smart enough to see this, that um, Frumkai is going down the drain. Uh, the reform movement hadn't risen the way you understand it, but it was already rising in a, in a proto-form. People in general, what's the matter of reform? <coughs> Excuse me, what's the matter of reform Judaism? But rather, it's a matter of um, indifferent. Uh, people being interested in just getting a good German education, make a living, and heck with the Jewish stuff. Uh, Anyway, it's what we in America know, obviously, and that is chinuch. It's all about chinuch. 
And chinuch means a Torah education. And so, cutting through all the baloney, he said, uh, the only thing we can do in the 19th century in Germany to have any chance of hope is you make yeshiva and try to educate as many guys as you can. And hopefully, you know, these will be number one, the leaders of tomorrow and the Balabatim of tomorrow. There is no other solution. And so uh, that's what he did. So I would say that what makes him very 19th century German is his very strong awareness of the importance of Chinuch at a mass level, which is something that had not penetrated elsewhere in, in Europe. I mean, in a few places it did, like in Hungary, but not necessarily in Eastern Europe. So you can't rely on the old traditionalism anymore because the Bubbies and the Zadis, the Opas and the Omas, I used to say, you know, maybe from, but by the time you get to the grandchildren, they're already wandering off unless you ground somebody with real chinuch. So, so he said it be Shiva um, in Mannheim. Uh, remember, his salary was already paid from the uh, Kolel, from that foundation. Uh, I'm sure he was able to raise money support X number of students. Never was a big yeshiva. Now, I saw somewhere somebody wrote that he had 70 students there. I can't believe that. Maybe 70 altogether or something like that. I strongly suspect the guy like him probably had a yeshiva of 20, 25, 30, and that was big. Right? That was a lot. Uh, that's how much Yiddish guy had gone down the line. Now, he had studied back home, not only in Würzburg, but with his father. I forgot to mention the rabbi in Karlsruhe was uh, the son of the Shagasarye. So, Rabasher. So, I mean, <laughs> he was exposed to heavy duty learning as a kid. And so he brought this uh, with him. And so, what I mean by that is, I wasn't there, but this is somebody you can be sure gave several shirim a day every day. No, it was an Ian shir, a Bakia shir for sure, a Shulchanar type shir, you know, that kind of thing. And if it's a small number of guys, let's say, let's say I'm right, let's say it's 20 guys. Um, in certain sense, it's ideal. Do you get what I'm saying? Notice it's not a large yeshiva, but it is a shear. So if you attend with him, uh, you have one on Can I use the expression one on one? You know, small, what's the, what's the small teacher or pupil ratio? And so his Talmudim became very uh, uh, attached to him. Uh, some learned there for years, some went there for a year or two. One of the guys that went there just for a year was Sam Serenfelerich. Uh, who was from Hamburg in the northern Germany and had finished uh, his gymnasium. Now, Hirsch didn't do clef tests. Hirsch did it the real way, you know, in a real gymnasium. But that meant he didn't go to yeshiva. So once he finished his <coughs> BA, let's use that term, before, he took a year off, like we do today, a gap year, uh, before he went to university, and he went to... Uh, now, he, Hirsch had several opportunities. He could have gone to Würzburg, maybe, or to, uh, you know, first, as I said before, or something like that. The choice he made was uh, in, in Mannheim, this small yeshiva, which is very interesting. It's like a guy in America today saying, where are you going to yeshiva in Israel? Or Lakewood. And a guy may say, oh, I'm going to BMG, or I'm going to this big place, that place. You know, I'm going to Israel, I'm going to learn in Mir. Okay, that's fine. No problem with that. Alternatively, somebody might say like this. I heard there's a, there's a Rebbe make a small yeshiva. He's very good in Lakewood in Muncie, in Yerushalayim, in B'nai Brak. A lot of people do that also, right? It's a small yeshiva, it's 10 guys, 20 guys, something like that, 30 guys maybe. But you have that intimate connection, and that's what Hirsch chose. And uh, therefore, he was a Talmud, if you want to use that term, of the Avetling, or Darchonir. Although, I, you know, not a Talmud in the sense you usually understand. You usually understand a Talmud of somebody learned by somebody for years, 
had shaykh for three years. I mean, he learned with him a grand total of one year. But on the other hand, he obviously kept up his connections with him. And uh, the reason I know that is because if you look in the Binyan scene with Shida Shalas and Shivas of our hero, you'll find, I remember, one or two uh, questions, Shilas, sent him by Shimshon Hirsch, the dying in Frankfurt. That's how he refers to him. So Hirsch uh, kept up his contact. I can't remember if he gave him a smich or not. The reason I say he wanted to give him a smich and only learn one year is because Hirsch had a screwball career in which he was in university. Right, right around this time, eighteen twenty, late eighteen twenties, and uh, before he finished the doctorate, he applied for an open job as rabbi of a country, a small German state, a country, and he got the job, but and he was and he was up against a, a reform guy or something like that, and so I'm sure at Lungers, I guess here's a, you know, in this situation, I'll give you a yori yon yon right now. I'm sure you'll learn it up on your own, you know, like that, which he did, which Hirsch certainly did. So I'm just this relationship between uh, the two. Now, uh, that means that our hero, let's put it this way, for about 10 years, 8 years, something like that, had this situation in which he was very Tzufriden, and uh, you know he had this small place, and I would imagine it probably started with a few guys and built up to 30. That's what I think. You know, I may be wrong, but that, that, I get that impression. Which would be, you know, very. It, it's a nice life, as it were. And and the most important thing is it keeps the Rebbe in learning. Because all his life he was holding but totally in learning. You know, all throughout Shas and Shulchan Aruch. Uh, in 1836. So that would mean that he was uh, in his 30s. Late 30s, not yet 40. He was offered a position in northern Germany, in Altona. And he took it. And that's where he spent the rest of his life. So basically, his forties, fifties, and sixties. He died in eighteen. He was seventy-two when he died. So you know, figure, like I say, forties, fifties, and sixties. That's where he spent the rest of his life, in uh, northern Germany, uh, in an interesting place, because this is the Jewish community, which no longer exists because the city no longer exists because it's been absorbed into Hamburg. This is northern Germany up at the Elbe River. I know you don't know the map. But what can I tell you? I got, I got no choice but to hope that somebody will open a map or Google it or something like that. There's a country called Germany. And north of Germany, sticking out of it in the north like a finger, is Denmark. Denmark is not part of Germany, okay? It's a different country. Now, Denmark is, you know, once upon a time was huge. And uh, people don't realize how big Denmark was. Denmark was a kingdom that included Norway and half of Sweden once upon a time. Okay? And Denmark also had a Stuttgart in what you and I today call Germany. It was really up to the border of Germany, but there was no country Germany. It was just the territory of the German states. And so, without trying to be confusing, there was a port city named Hamburg, which was in Germany, although it was a self-governing city. It was an independent Medina of its own. It's all part of the old Holy Roman Empire stuff. And near that, like, you know, like two miles away, was already the Danish border and the town of Altona, which is also there for a port city. But it was part of Denmark. So basically, it's like living on the American-Canadian border, if you can imagine such a thing, right? And, you know, and this side of the border is, or, you know, or the Mexican border, you know, here's El Paso and here's uh, the Mexican part, something like that, or uh, San Diego, Tijuana, you know, something along those lines. 
Now, these were both prosperous port cities. Uh, the Jews in Hamburg were in Germany. They were somebody called the German Junk. Hirsch grew up in Hamburg. And that's an important community, no question about it. And they had all the Gezeras against the Jews, and, you know, the Jewish situation rose and fell according to the times. It was the 1800s, during the lifetime of our hero, the Jews in a city like Hamburg were engaged in what, what boils down to a 55-year-long struggle to get civil rights. And that's what it is. I won't bore you with those details. Uh, a few miles away is Altona, which is today part of Hamburg. The borders have changed. But that time was part of Denmark. The king of Denmark, already back in the 1600s, for purely economic reasons, said like this. I don't want any Jews living Mamish in Denmark Mamish, like Copenhagen and all that. But all the way at the far end, I have a, a little port city, which I can make into an important port city if I let some Jews in there. So I don't want the Jews moving Mamish in Denmark, but they can be in that part of Denmark. And so Jews who moved to Altona had more privileges and more freedom than Jews who lived two miles away in, in Hamburg. Okay? So you basically ended up with a situation where you have two Jewish communities very close to each other, but they're under different sets of laws. That's what I'm trying to set this up so you can understand the Matthias, which is hard to understand. Um, so the Jew, and long ago, because they're all near each other, I mean, like back in the late 1600s, the Jewish community of Hamburg and Altona and another one, Wandsbeck, got together and said, you know, being Yankees, they were more efficient. So uh, they said, let's combine this all into one Kehillah so you can have one Rav, one Beisden, and that sort of thing, the Ashkenazim. Now, to be perfectly honest, the Jews in Altona are not Yankees. They're mostly Jews running away from Chmelnitsky massacres and the aftermath. There's a book that came out recently from Professor Teller. Everybody wants to get it. What's his name was interviewing him. The Swarm Chatter was interviewing him on, the, on his uh, blog or whatever he called it, Twitter junk. And uh, uh, it's a very good book, by the way. And when the Jews are running away from the massacres by the Cossacks in southern Poland and massacres by the Russians in northern Poland, I'm talking about in the 1600s, so they ran here, there, and the other, and a bunch of them went to Altona. So it's like a Litvisha um, community, if you can follow what I'm saying. But it's located in part of Denmark, which is adjacent to Germany, but not in Germany. Have I confused you? <laughs> now, the community of Altona, which therefore was the leading community of the three Ashkenazi communities, with the, they made the community, the, the, the triple community of Altona, Hamburg, Brunswick, Ahu, they used to call it. So, uh, they had all the, that's where Jonas and Avishis was, that's where the Chacham Tzvi was, um, many uh, famous rabbis were over there. That's where Yaakov Endem wanted to be, that's the Terzi Kusil was there. Knesset Yechesko, I mean, whatever. Names probably don't mean anything to you. They had famous rabbis and stuff. And it was under Denmark, as I said before. So the German laws, which were very discriminatory, didn't apply to them. They had some discrimination laws against them, but much, much less. This, by the way, is why, when the Emden Ancients fight broke out in the 1750s, the case was handled in the Danish courts, the courts of the King of Denmark. Uh which is now being, the, the record's now being studied by uh, Pablo Machico. And um, this is just the history of the city of Altona. So basically, it wasn't a bad place to live as things went, and the Jews got very heavily involved in the trade, as you might imagine. They had Ashkenaz and Spider, Mom, Constantine, and Ashkenaz. 
and uh, therefore was a, a well-known community. Now, in the Napoleon times, uh, it's hard not to confuse you, suffice it to say that the French came in under Napoleon and they annexed Hamburg. Isn't that funny? Napoleon took a big chalik. If you If you Google a map of Europe in 1810, you'll see the French sticking into this country and this country and that country, French Empire. And so they broke up the communities and Altona remained just a separate uh, uh, community with no shackles with Hamburg uh, under da Danish rule. Uh, and there still was a community there. So now instead of being a triple community, it's a single community. About 2,000 Jews, 2,500. That's not a small number by the standards of those days. And like I said before, it had a lot of gedolim in there. Now I'm going to tell you the reason I'm going through all this rigmarole. The Danes, the Danish government had its own rules. And for, whereas in Germany, the different German states, especially in the north, either deprived or never allowed in the first place the Jews to have real coercive communities with Basins. Now, uh, Altona, uh, Denmark did. So let me put it this way. Uh, if Depending where you live in Germany, if you lived in, in the triple communities I just described, uh, the Jewish community could force you to do stuff. If they say you got to grow a beard at different times in history, you got to do it. If they say, obviously, you got to close your store in Shabbos or else, there'll be, there'll be hell to pay. They could arrest you. They could fine you. They could beat you up. If somebody didn't want to, uh, as happened in the late 1700s, Professor Katz has a whole article on this. A guy didn't want to circumcise his child. Uh, you know, the Jewish community, the Kehillah could force you. And a guy protested it to the, to the Senate. I won't bore you with the details. But by the time Napoleon comes along, they, you know, all that dropped. And the Jewish communities no longer had power over their members. And therefore, the Basedins, in the sense of Chosha Mishpat, stopped. So all throughout Germany, it became a thing like America. If you want to go to Chosha Mishpat case, go. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Nobody can make you. And uh, that's what killed the Chosha Mishpat. Because people say, I'll go to German court. You understand? After all, they can afford it better. Altena was a, was not was in Germany or adjacent to Germany, but not part of Germany. It's part of Denmark. The Denmark for another generation or two kept up the old system. Okay, Denmark is a very interesting country. They I won't say they like Jews, because they didn't, and they had their pogroms many years ago. Oh boy, many years ago when I was in college, I had to read a very very interesting book, and I can't remember the author. A Jewish guy wrote the book, a Danish Jew, I believe in 1848, and it was called The Jew or something like that, a Danish novel, it's kind of famous in Denmark, I can't remember his name, it was all about a Jewish guy growing up in Copenhagen, and going through a pogrom there, and other adventures, so, uh, you know, Denmark was like that, but for the Jews in the southern extremity, which is where uh, Altona was, so uh, it, it, it wasn't bad at all. So when Rabbi Yaakov Antliger was invited to become the Rav of Basin, the old school title, in Altona in 1836, they still had an, a functioning old-fashioned Jewish community in which they had an autonomous, coercive Kehillah. There was a Basin. You had to take the Chosh Mishpah cases there. Uh, the Chosh Mishpah was enforced by the Danish police uh, you know, uh, Judaism was taken very seriously. The reform movement was in Hamburg, but not in Altona. 
Uh, the first Reformed temple was in Hamburg, 1819. But now in Altona, that's still a holdout of the Frumkite. And so he was coming to, by the standards of Germany, 1830s, a more right-wing community, shall we say. And he spent, as I say, the rest of his life there as the Basin in the full sense of being the rabbi. It says in his contract, I saw in the new Benetian, he has to speak in German every once in a while. So in other words, the fact that he had some kind of a college education was considered a big plus by the Baal even though the guy I'm describing is not a German scholar at all. He's a guy that even if he would have gone to college, would do it totally shalolishma, just to be able to help out in the Rabbanus. And, uh, and that's what he did. Now, as soon as he came to Altona, being who he was, he said, the first thing we've got to do over here is set up Yeshiva. In other words, I didn't, I'm not leaving my position as Rosh Yeshiva in Monaheim just to be some rabbi in the Velterine in, in Altona, even though it's a, you're presiding a real basin. But we have to make Yeshiva here because in modernity, there is no solution except to make Yeshiva and educate as many people as, as we can. That's as true in 2020 as it was in 1820. There's no other solution. Right? There's no Torah, there's no Torah, there's all these other things. Since it's, it's, it's all baloney, the whole question boils down to how many guys can you get in Yeshiva and hopefully brainwash them. There's no other way. So, uh, so that's what he did. So he set up the Yeshiva. So because he was who he was, and uh, there was already a base medish building, I remember they had a Yeshiva building, which had been built by the Chacham Tzvi <laughs> when he was in Altada back in the 1690s. And so there was a building there and all the rest of it. And uh, so he ran a yeshiva there for the rest of his life. So one of the very few places, let me put it this way, by the time we get to 1830s or so, the reform movement, or a little bit later possibly, they closed down the yeshivas in Würzburg and in uh, Firth and any other yeshivas in South Germany. So uh, that was a bummer. The Mannheim small yeshiva continued under one of his students, but it was small. But if you want, if you were the type of person who, for whatever reason, was a German yeki and you want to go to yeshiva, I mean, a real yeshiva, yeshiva, you can go to Altona. You have, you know, you have mamash yeshiva of Darchlaner type, you know, and uh, it probably was the last yeshiva of the real sort in Germany. I imagine one of his students in Altona in this new uh, yeshiva was Hildesheimer. You see, Israel Hildesheimer was born. 1820, so do the math. You know, and the, our hero came there in 1836. So that's what we study under. Uh, plus others, of course. And uh, therefore, he spent the rest of his life doing what he liked to do. Uh, number one, uh, giving shiurim every day with tests and everything. And number two, uh, putting in three, four hours, I think they said, every day in the Chosha Mishpat, in the, in the Basin, right? Where he had real Shilas all the time. So all this stuff keeps your juices flowing. That's my point. All your stuff keeps your juices flowing, and he liked it. So he, so he had a full field for the exercise of his talents, as we say today. The problem in life was that in Germany in general, things moving to the left. And in the 1840s, which is about a less than a decade after he came to his new position, that's when the reform movement, as we would call today, really uh, blossomed in 1843, 45, I think, if I remember correctly. There were like three uh, reform conferences, one in Brunswick, the one in Frankfurt, and one somewhere else. 
And that's where they started to change the Jewish religion. The reform rabbis got together and said, you don't need this, you don't need that. Change the davening, get rid of Shabbos, you know, the whole, the whole business. Now, you and I are used to this, but they weren't used to it at that time. They were used to people not being from. That's a totally different question than somebody being reformed. In fact, one of the most famous chubas, as we'll see later on, of Rabbi Yaakov Antlinger, and the one that people certainly relied on when I was a kid for the wine, is that a Mechal Shabbos nowadays is not a, is not a, doesn't have a dinner Mechal Shabbos for Hesia. You know what I mean? With, with all the rules that go along with it. The Mechal Shabbos today is, is, is not making the wine trafe, to use plain English. And the reason is because it's like, sort of like a Tinnish and Nishma kind of situation, or, or maybe not, but I remember he said like this, he says, he said, listen, in the Gemara in the Old Swarm, when they talk about Mechal Shabbos, they're talking about a guy who rejects Shabbos. In Germany, you have a screwball situation. He says, I see myself. Person goes to Shoal, and he davens, and he means it, and he makes Kiddush, and then in the afternoon he goes and opens the store. What do you call such a person? You get it, the halacha had not conceived such a thing because it didn't exist in the old days. And today we call it, you know, I mean, I tell you the truth. I'll bet you, for most of the people listening to this now, since it's in the year 2020, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Most of you probably younger. You've grown up in a different world. You've grown up in a world in which there's been like a sorting out. And the Orthodox Shul today, generally speaking, everybody's a Shema Shabbos just about. That's certainly the case in Baltimore, New York, you know, usually. Uh, and the uh, people who are non-observant, they, don't go, they go to conservative, they go to reform, or they don't go to anything. But that's not the way it was when I was a kid. And before, you had plenty of Orthodox Shuls uh, in which nobody was a Shema Shabbos, or very few people, if any. And you ask the question, why do you go to Orthodox? That's for whatever reason, for traditional, for this, or perhaps, you know, they figure, if I do Judaism, this should be the right, it should at least be the right way. Uh, there's that wonderful story with with the Hildesheimer, where, um, did I mention this here before? Uh, Hildesheimer, where he later on ran the Orthodox the Rabbinical Seminary. I spoke about him a year ago, whatever. And he was approached once <laughs> by a community, so send us a rabbi. And he said, there's not one Shomer Shabbos in your community. You know, nobody there is from, why do you want an Orthodox rabbi? And they said, the passengers may be drunk, but the coachman must be sober. Very <laughs> yakish away, right? A rabbi is supposed to be a rabbi. And uh, if you have that mentality... That is that you can't say the Mechal Shabbos like you, is, is, is what it once was. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, you always had trouble. What if somebody not from touches the wine? Didn't have the boiled wine like you have nowadays. And I remember in Baltimore when you had a bar mitzvah or a wedding or something like that. I'm taking back many, many years. <laughs> Different time. The, uh, the caterers, I remember Beta and the other Berlin, the caterers, if somebody, let's say a guy was fancy one of champagne. I'm just, I just remember some cases like that. As a bar mitzvah at a wedding or something. So, uh, <laughs> what would happen is, they set up all the wine glasses, you know, those fancy schmancy wine glasses on the table, and the waiters, the guy were not allowed to touch it, and the owner, who was a from guy, he would come and personally pour all the wine. Yeah, that's how it was once. Okay? Uh, now, if you didn't want to do that, you rely on Netlinger, who said, 
then nowadays if you touch the wine, it's not not, not gonna make it a you know stamyanum or something like that. Because they're all it's not exactly tinnish and nishba, because in his time I can't use the word tinnish and nishba, but yeah, let's call it tinnish and nishba. So I'm simply saying that he was aware of the way things are sliding. That's why he put so much emphasis into chinuch. As I said before, it's the only solution. If you give somebody education, hopefully it'll work. And I would say offhand, I don't know if any of these Talmudim went off the dirt. I'm sure I'm wrong. That's pretty good if a guy like me, I usually know all the dirt. If a guy like me doesn't know anybody who went off the dirt, sounds like he did a pretty good job. You know what I'm saying? Did a pretty good job. Now, um, if th- when, th- when this happened, that the reform movement came out to try to li- formally change Judaism, which is different than the Chal Shabbos argument I just said before. Now you're talking about people, Ramamish Api Kursim, right? They knew better, and some of them were learned, and they were wanted to change it anyway. So they were just wicked. So that's a different story. So he tried to organize a reaction against it. He got together 150 signatures from famous rabbis, blasting what the, uh, the reform were doing, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, you, you, it's, it's on, must be online, right? Uh, most in German, some in Hebrew. He got everybody, he was smart. What he did was, he got every, listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. He got every Orthodox rabbi and every conservative rabbi to condemn the reform rabbis. You know what I said? The Orthodox plus the conservative. Because the conservative, he said, for, for this purposes, anybody who uh, opposes what the reform are doing should count. So like Shlomo hit a rapport from Prague was on there and other people like that. Hirsch, of course, was. And this is strongly protesting. Now, i got to tell you something. Being Germany was so traditionalistic in that everybody had a from grandfather and, and grandmother, it actually had a Roshan. And uh, it retarded the progress of reform, and uh, I mean permanently, and many people are not aware, most people, that the reform movement did not really take off in Germany. It remained quite small. Conservative Judaism took off. That's liberal, they called it, which in America we call conservative Judaism. That took off, and that was a problem, but not reform. Reform went a little bit too far, and uh, it was in America that reform took off in the 1800s, because America was Ahmed Barshmamari, and Amaratsis was taken to new levels, but not in Germany. So our hero had certain, uh, uh, what should I say, uh, success in that regard. But Stopping reform, as I just pointed out, is not the same thing as making anybody from. It just means they won't go reform, but they go conservative, or they go secular, they go indifferent. So he had his, he had his hands full. He had his hands full. Now, uh, all during this time, his reputation was rising. One of the things he did, which is, uh, again, just very interesting, and this is a pragmatic, this is a pragmatic German side. I mean, in a good way, not a bad way. Pragmatic Gekish aside, he said, listen, um, the reform and the others are depending on getting their word out. There was no internet at that time. <clears throat> so it's newspapers and magazines. We need a Jewish press. There was no such thing. The Orthodox, as you can imagine, were simply unused to the world of journalism. It was not yeshivish. It's not old-fashioned. And so he said, we got to start. When he, he got hit and a friend of his named Enoch, they started a Jewish press. A from German news, German Jewish newspaper called the Troyans, the Troye Zionswächter, the faithful guardian of Zion, in which they put it was like the Jewish press, or like today the you know, um, 
you know, the, uh, the mish, the mish, not mish, not the right word, because in America, there's no longer fighting at reform, you know what I mean, it's a done deal. Maybe, maybe a little bit like the Jewish Observer of yesteryear, I don't know, uh, a from Jewish newspaper, not a bad literary level, and, um, it was to make the case for the, the front position on all issues that the reform were tining against. And in general, be like a newspaper. This is a big Kiddush. And this started a pioneering. This has started a whole bunch of from newspapers. And Germany eventually crossed Europe. Uh, as you know, Hirsch later on made one called Yeshurun, another one called the Israelite, another one called this, that, and the other, Lebanon. There were the idea of the from rallying around newspaper. Uh, Started with uh, with Etlinger, which is which is just interesting. And I want to tell you something. <clears throat> the newspapers in German, so nobody could read it, especially it's old uh, Gothic letters. But um, each paper, I think it was a weekly, a monthly, uh, I think it was a weekly, maybe. Each uh, edition or every other edition had a Hebrew section in the back. Okay, the Hebrew section obviously was designed for Tamir Chachamim. German can't read the Hebrew, and this fascinating, right? So it's it's instead of calling the Troya Zionswechter, it's called Shomer Zion Hanemon, which is a translation of Troya Zionswechter, Shomer Hatzion Hanemon. Now here, you have something that you can read, and uh, it's absolutely fascinating. Many moons ago, I, I mean I don't can't remember how long I was once in New York and I picked up. They used to sell, maybe they still do. I have two bound volumes, nicely bound, and they had the whole set of all the Shomeratzion and their months. Uh, somebody put them together, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's it called, you know, uh, reprinted or photo photocopied or whatever. Um, and if you can get a hold of it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. That's a uh, dissertation waiting to happen because uh, this was published by Etlinger. Um, he was obviously the Torah editor because who else could edit it by him? He got contributions from the Marm Sheikh, from this one, from that, all over the place, from Yushalayim. And they had what we say today Torah topics. So, first of all, listen closely. They had a lot of Shilas and Shivas in there, from him and from a bunch of other rabbis. Shilas and Shivas usually on, on, on things that are halachal maisa. So, for example, uh, I remember that, you know, I have it with me somewhere. I remember that in his time, this is when the Metzitzah uh, controversy started. One of the first things the Reform did was go against the Metzitzah for obvious reasons. It's unhealthy. You know, they used to say like this, the mall has syphilis, it's getting the baby infected. There were rumors to this effect. We hear this now also. Uh, and the bottom line is like this, you never know, <laughs> right? And there was such a revulsion against the Metzitzah that the Chassam Sofer famously permitted the modern Jews in Vienna to uh, use the, 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 the tube. You know, that's where it started. And for the Chassam Sober, it spread to Hirsch and to Yitzhakon Inspector and to Chaim Brisker and everybody all over Europe. There's a great article in this if you're actually interested. You can even get it in English. The teaching controversy by Professor Jacob Katz in his book Divine Law and Human Hands, I think it's called. It's one of those early things that the Reform attacked. I don't blame the Reform. It's a good one to zero in on. Agreed? So, uh... uh the best medical knowledge at that time was against the Mitzitzah. To our hero, I remember he devoted a whole bunch of columns to discussing the Mitzitzah thing, and, and Brismil, this got him into Brismil. There's a lot in the article in there. 
and the bringing seen on on bris mila stuff. And that's because at that time it wasn't just a lumda shabbat, but was a a subject you had to master because a uh, whole bunch of reasons. One of them is it was always under attack by the authorities. Another one was the reform wanted to claim you don't need bris mila and you can be an official member of a Jewish community, which was a legal thing in Germany and Austria, even without a bris mila. Even though the Jewish communities used to argue that you do require bris mila. I won't get into that controversy now. Take us too far afield. <laughs> there was a lot of t- a lot of fights going on at that time. But my point is like this: our hero end- ended up publishing the Shalos and Shabbos Binyan Zion. I think I assume many of you know that, and it's one of the classic Shalos and Shabbos. Especially, like I said before, it's a wonderful uh, illustration of the 19th century, because he had questions like a Machal Shabbos nowadays and things like that, uh, or about the machine matzah. You know, he's the one who defended the machine matzah. They said. He said, baloney, if it, if it works and it's better, it's better halachically, uh, uh, you know what I mean? In other words, less chimuts, use it. That's where the brewers come from, you know, from the beginning scene. And uh, he dealt with the carbonus business. He, he was asked by uh, Tzvi Hirsch Kalasher whether he knew the carbon Pesach nowadays. And he's all, you know, but a lot of basic questions. If a coin, I remember, a coin is married to a guy, Kenny Duchen, you know, things like that. Even as the bizarre one over there, when I was a kid, they used to call Bias a Mashiach. This lady, some guy bamboozled her into saying he's a Mashiach and it's necessary. It's like a Jesus thing, you know. He's got to get her pregnant in order for the Mashiach to come. And she fell for it and she also did a ball or not. They, you know, it, 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 like any Shalos and Shubha situation, it's, uh, it's got wild and crazy stories in there. A lot of these Shalos are simply lifted from his magazine, which is nothing wrong. In other words, the laboratory in which he tried out his Shubhas was the magazine... Uh, what I'm talking about, which therefore means that you get feedback. You get what I'm saying? So if he would publish a, a, a shuba, and he, it's full of them. He has written many, many articles. There's a, if, if somebody's a, a fanatic on um, our hero, for whatever reason, uh, then you're not going to be satisfied with Darach Lanair and the uh, Binyan Sian. You also want to get a hold of Sherman Sian Nemo because it's got a lot of stuff in him on all sorts of business, on Musser, on Agatha, on Shalos and Shubas, on Chedushim, on Chakiris, as he calls them. He calls them Chakiris, and things of that nature. He's a very active participant, along with, like, a lot of famous other people. I remember the Marm Sheikh wrote in there a lot of times. You know, it was one of these early Torah journals. Now, uh, this was his way. In other words, he fought, as I would say, in a literary fashion, which is important, because, there was, like I said before, uh, you know, uh, there was no internet, no TV, and you know, so how, how, how do you get word out there? It's got to be through the written word. I mean, by the way, they have their share of stupid poems, you know, but okay, uh, a little muscular, get it? But you know, there's nothing wrong with them, and uh, it's just fascinating, okay? Now, in addition to this, he, as we all know, he published the Lanier. This is just very interesting because if the Charles Jubas probably came from his basement, right? And from the fact that he got a big reputation and people uh, wrote to him from all over Europe because he has questioned it from everywhere. And and let me tell you, he was very aware that it's the 1830s, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, and so the whole idea of basins under attack. So you can be very, very sure that everything was run, as we say, glad yosher, not only glad kosher. Everything was on the up and up. This was a basin that everybody could trust, and he was transparently uh, honest because, first of all, he was that type of person. But second of all, he was well aware the slightest slip-up 
No, let's put it this way. All you needed was one scandal, you know, of a basin like you have in America nowadays, and that the reform and everybody would, would kill the whole idea of basins. You know what I'm saying? So even I remember even the non frum said like this. Honesty is if you go to his basin, you know, you might not like the Talmudic law, but if you go there you will get a fair shake and on and everything's hundred percent up and up and above board. You know what I mean? There's, there's, there's all the Yakish of virtues. Glot Yosher. Uh so that's just interesting. Now I will tell you something. Um, so what I was saying was that from all these shiurmi gave, that's where he put together Arachaner, which is Chedushim on the Masechtes. Now this is uh, one of four. Let me just think about this. I think I'm right if I say there's a certain genre. I can think of four examples of people put out sfarim. Chedushim on, on the pages of the Shas. It's not as common as you think. Uh, you know, the Gemara Shikosu, uh, I can think of the Pnei Yeshua, and the Tzlach, and uh, the Karanora, and the Rechlaner. That's what comes to mind. So, see, he's part of a not large club. If I'm forgetting somebody, you know, I am. Uh, people don't do this besides that. You see? See, he became part of the and he became part of a, a of I, I would say like this, a yeshiva shestal of a certain type. And because of that, he's the only Yakisha rabbi in the nineteenth century that I can think of whose works entered the mainstream yeshiva movement. Okay? Everybody's into the Rachaner and everybody's into the being Yitzian, particularly Rachaner. It's quoted in, I mean uh, you know Rabark Bear quotes the Rachaner, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So uh, uh I I can't think of any other rabbi in Germany in the nineteenth century like that. Uh, uh, Hildesheimer, for example, by Charles and Chubas, but no one's heard of him. I mean, I haven't, but you know, they never got any traction. He has some tradition with some of his They didn't get much traction. I, I have them. You know, they're published by most of Cook, but you know, it, it didn't get out there. Uh, not Hirsch, uh, Dorothy Hoffman, the tradition on Shas. You see what I'm doing? You see what I'm doing? It's not what you think. So uh, Rabbi Yaakov Edling was like in a class by himself. That, that I suppose is what we would say today. And a class by himself, uh, and therefore he, his legacy was uh, one that's rare, uh, since he immersed himself in a yeshivish type of culture, and that's what his writings were, his main writings. So he gained that kind of immortality that a lot of other people don't have, because as they say, sif so so sif so so devras people are still learning your stuff um, in ways that's not true of a lot of swarm other ones. It's got nothing to do with whether they're good farm or not. I'm not saying a word like that altogether. But I don't think anybody's heard of the uh, great works of the Rashivas of Wurzburg and Firth and all that. You find Rabbi Hamburger's book, The Shards of Canaan and the Elders, not putting them down, but they're still saying no, no one's ever heard of them. They didn't get traction. That's how it goes in the literary world. Some get traction, some don't get traction. But let me stop this for a second. Okay, let me uh, to switch the tapes. Uh, what was I saying? The... Uh, history of our hero is uh, one in which, as I said before, his uh, his uber, you might say, got into the yeshiva world, and the binyan scene also is like a very important. I, mean, it's, I think it's quoted quite a lot. Tell you the truth, uh, and he has a, that famous safer on uh, what do you call it, Bikur Yaakov, you know, in Sukkot. Although there he has something very weird, which I think I mentioned with our very and he was speculating that the um, 
asteroids that grow in the southern hemisphere. I think below the equator might not be good because they're Shalokadarkadula or something like that. So he must have understood that, you know, the globe being what it is, anything that's pointing downwards is like a problem. It's a, that's a weird um, opinion. Uh, you know, so he must have had clear, but he knew geography. You know, I mean, he was an educated person. Uh, he also knew science, you know, the basic stuff. So I, I don't understand that one. But uh, let me say this. He was started in 1836. So for close to 30 years, for 27 years, he ran a good show. And no one had any complaints about how he's running the bays or anything like this. Quite the opposite. I would say in his time, particularly the bays in Altona was like famous. And people from Hamburg nearby were not part of that. Used to go there. And other people go there. Let's put it today. Here we are in America today. I don't know what it's like where you are. Everybody's looking for one good basin. You know, an honest basin, a competent basin. You know, no baloney. You don't think anybody's prejudiced. It's it's hard to find these things. And, uh, you know, and he was able to attain. So he literally made a kiddish Hashem. Now, Denmark should have let things go the way they were. I don't know the reason, and I don't have the time to go and investigate, although maybe somebody will be interested in doing that. Uh, but in 1863, they pulled the plug. In other words, when he was already about 65 years old, he be, and no one had any complaints about him, the Danish government themselves didn't. But for whatever reason, uh, they said, you know, they, they they abolished that. Maybe it was too... For, maybe, let me put it this way. For that, for a long time, the only based in, in Europe, uh, outside of Eastern Europe, the only based in, in Germany, France, England, Holland, and such places that had kosher mishra power, I repeat, enforced by the police, was an Altona, okay? Uh, maybe it was too much of a of a anomaly, um, but I want to tell you something interesting. And so the Danish government abolished it. <laughs> now, listen closely. You can do history in a lot of different ways. Among those many different ways, you could do, let's say, put it this way, from a secular perspective, an objective perspective. That's what we usually try to do. It's also possible, separate from that, to do something from a narrow, very narrow Jewish perspective, like a frummy, frummy perspective. It's possible to do it that way also. I'm talking about in terms of an analysis of megatrends. <clears throat> and I'll tell you an example I'm talking about. Take Denmark, for example. Uh, back in the 1600s, uh, Denmark equaled uh, the current country of Denmark and some territory south of it, Schleswig-Holstein, and Norway, and um, half of Sweden, what you call Scania, the southern half of Sweden, a big halic of Sweden. And that's what it was. I don't say the Danes were Sadiq or not. They were one of those countries. They had a lot of wars. Now, um, in the middle of the 1600s, like 1650s, I think, the Swedes conquered, who were big military power, conquered Scania from Denmark, and the whole thing became part of Sweden, like the country of Sweden today. All right, so it's a stupid little uh, European detail. It's a famous story, or at least it'll be famous in a second, that um, during World War II, I think many of you know that Danes were good, and they protected the Jews, meaning when the Germans came to round them up. So in Copenhagen, they went, the Danes uh, picked up the Jews, like arrested them, and took them to boats and sent them over the water to Sweden to safety. The great majority of the Jews. Uh, I imagine you've heard of that, right? 
and it was very close by because if you look at the map where Denmark ends, Sweden almost begins a, l a little bit of water. Skagrak and all that. It's uh, enough to know. It's close. So it was possible to do it. And the story is told that there was this very from old Jew in Denmark who had been Dory Doris in Denmark and when he was rescued this way and arrived in Sweden, southern Sweden. So he said, now I understand. <laughs> I said, what do you mean I understand? He says, I always said to Rabbi Shalom, Denmark is such a nice country. Uh, and in his mind, it always had been. Rabbi Shalom, why did you have us lose uh, Scania to the Swedes back in the 1600s? No, he's a patriotic Danish. And uh, it was a from Jew, patriotic Dane. And, uh, you know, I can never understand why God would punish uh, Denmark that way, and give half of Sweden back to, uh, half of the sun and half of Sweden to Sweden. Now I understand, because the Brunnishland was planning for the Holocaust, it's planning for us to get rescued, and if the southern half of Sweden would be part of Denmark, would be under the Nazis, and we would never be able to get away. So, that's a highly particularistic way of looking at history, that events happened hundreds of years before, so that one Jew or two, whatever, later on would be possibly affected. The Rambam seems to write like that in one of his essays. I think the intro to the Mishnah, perhaps you'll recall this, where he says, you see a big building, and it's like a Taj Mahal situation, and it's fancy, the but the truth is it's only built so that one day a chassid, as he calls it, will walk by on a hot day and sit down and take refuge in the shadow provided by its walls. This is highly deterministic, you know. Those great events are there for the tzaddik. Um, and that's all. And the rest of it is just furniture. So that's a cute story. Now I'm going to tell you my version of the cute story. Uh, Altena was part of the Kingdom of Denmark, which was adjacent to, not part of Germany. Uh, in the 1848, uh, there was an uprising throughout Germany. I remember all the details at the moment, but one of the issues in Prussia was, you know, should you take this territory from Denmark or not? It was like a still war, even a little, a little, a very small war, uh, that went on in, in this business. There's a Baltimore connection because one of the Jews who fought in the Prussian army against the Danes was Blumenberg, who later on came and was a general here in the Civil War, the president of Reform Temple. Um, but anyhow, um, so there was this somewhat bad blood between uh, Denmark and Germany, or the Kingdom of Prussia, which was next door. Now, um, fine. But meanwhile, Denmark still held on to all of its territory. And then, in 1860, now this is going to sound funny, but never. Anyway, then in 1863, they decide to be Rishon, and they take away the power of the basin in Altona, uh, the last one holding out in Europe. So it's like they lost their Zechus Hakim, because not long after that, Denmark did something unbelievably stupid, they declared war on Prussia. That's like, a, that's like Israel declaring war on the United States. And it's called the 1864 War. And uh, the Danes were crushed. And they had to give up half their country, Schleswig-Holstein, as they called it, plus Altona. So in other words, as long as you let the Jews alone, you held on to it, even though it was like anomalous to have this piece of territory on the Elbe River next door to Germany. The minute you mess with the Jews, you lost that, plus you lost... 50% of your country, as it were. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? They lost 50% of the country. I think they made a movie about it recently, if I'm not mistaken. And um, uh, that's what happened. So for the last 
what seven years of his life, our hero was uh, in was no longer part of Denmark, but was um, in Prussia, part of Germany. Not that he could care less which Galicia country was. He wasn't that type. But nevertheless, that's what happened. And in Prussia, for sure, they're not going to give any power to local basins. You understand? And so he had to spend the last seven years of the country with a basin, like in America. In other words, if you want to come, you come. You don't want to come, you don't have to come. So his life must have been radically altered. And uh, the yeshiva, though, he tried to continue the best he could. It was in the last decade of his life, ironically, that the Jews of Germany finally got their t- complete and total civil rights. But, you know, that's that could go either way. That could make them better Jews, it could make them worse Jews. And, you know, I'm sure he was... Uh, you know, concerned with that, but he was in his old age. I don't know the details. What I do know is, they died in 1870, which was the year Bismarck created the German Empire. They had the war with France. So there was a super wave of German patriotism, which hit almost everybody, including all the from Jews. And Edling would not have approved of that. Not the way I read him. He would not approve of that. But, uh, but that's because he was too old school. And so... The only thing we can say is when he died, so in other words, even the reform said like this, we didn't agree with him, but he was an honest man. In other words, there's no, no, there was never the slightest hint of scandal or anything like that, or anything improper uh, by him. Which you can't say about all the rabbis, what can I tell you? You know? And so, uh, what was his, his legacy? It's interesting. He had a lot of kids, and I remember a lot of son-in-laws became, um, were big rabbis, but uh, a lot of them became big mockers in the Mizrahi. That's just interesting. Or or things like that. Uh, one of his sons-in-law, who was uh, Marcus Horowitz, who had a big fight with Sam Shreve Hirsch, for example, is just interesting because he became the rabbi of the non-Ostrid com- com- community in Frankfurt. Uh, he had another one, Una. There was a big family of uh, modern Orthodox rabbis in Germany. And uh, a whole bunch of others. The, the legacy he left was an interesting legacy because they did not keep the yeshiva up after him. On the other hand, the community of Altona and Hamburg, because it all eventually became one, really, uh, was influenced by his presence. And he's not the only reason, but he's an important one. And I would say that as the communities went in Germany, uh, Hamburg became the one of the largest communities in Germany uh, down to Hitler's time. And... Um, uh, let me say this: in it wasn't like Frankfurt. The um, there were reformed Jews there from the very beginning. Reform started there, but the Jews worked it out pragmatically. There should be one big kahila that they cooperate on this, that, and the other. Except they'll have different shows for different different people with religious opinions. And the reform agreed that uh, you know the kashras and the cemeteries and a lot of other things should be run by the Orthodox, because I think, you know, he left a big Rosham. And he, like I said before, even the opponents couldn't say anything bad against him. And uh, that meant that in Hamburg, down to Hitler's time, we had a funny situation. We had some very wealthy people, uh, and rather assimilated all the rest of it, who were part of the Orthodox community. And, um, you know, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily know it, but uh, they dove in the Orthodox synagogues when they dove in and um, uh, lent the whole community a more traditionalist kind of um, uh, flavor. 
And that's why you have people like Rabbi Karlbach and others who are so important Rabbonim. And, and in the 20th century, around the time of the First World War, the time of Rabbi Karlbach, there were already attempts. I mean, they did reestablish Yeshiva in Hamburg. Um, wasn't big, you know. I don't know if it ever took off much, but it was a yeshiva in there. And even brought some literature to rabbis. I can't remember who it was. And uh, was it Shakovitsky or something? And uh, this is clearly the legacy of the Arachlaner was there to understand you can't have any success nowadays uh, if you don't have some sort of yeshiva kind of environment. Anyway, that's what I wanted to share about this. And without a video, a good night. Once again, I wish Nisham Shavaliyah for our sponsors. And with that, I say, have a good week. I got to add a postscript. <laughs> After I uh, recorded this uh, talk, this podcast, I sent it to Arielba uh, because he usually edits the stuff of mine or whatever. And uh, this is member sponsor for his uh, grandmother. And he reminded me that he and his, uh, when they just got married, well, not long ago, it's he and his wife Heather, they went to Altona, among other places, when they visited Germany. And he sent me a photo standing next to the Keber, the article there of all things. And I got to share this with you, because Ari wrote to me, he said that when they were on their trip, he and his wife were on their trip to uh, Europe, he said, we went to Altona to Daven by the Kvarim. Uh, we got a key from Chabad there in Hamburg. Remember, Altona is part of Hamburg now. And we went to the cemetery before dark. We opened the gates to the cemetery. That itself would freak me out, but I'm a coin, so it's not no gear. Anyway, we looked for the various Kvarim of Jonas and Abschitz and Jakob Emden and the Orchlaner. And my wife Heather is very meticulous and has a discerning eye, and so she became an expert in spotting the kavarim of the various gedolim. After we finished davening, it was getting dark. We left, but on the way back to the hotel, Ari tells me he says I noticed that I forgot my tehillim. He didn't have the tehillim in my coat pocket; it must have fallen out. So we slept out and ran all the way back to the cemetery to see if it was there. This at night, and then Heather's keen eye came in handy. She found the tehillim not far from the cover of the Arklaner. And it's virtually dark, and we were unknown part of town. So I said, "Let's get out of here. Come back later." But she said, "If it's open, if the t you know it was open, no, it fell down. So the parak tehillim was open too." She said, uh, "Let's uh, recite that." And so there we were in the old Altona cemetery, with the husband having spilkas to get out as the sun is setting, and the new wife is davening and taking her time near the kever of the Arachlaner. So if you consider that a coincidence, uh, shame on you. Very good. I'm, I'm glad he, he, he shared that with me. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.